This podcast contains graphic or mature material. Depictions of murder, violence, and graphic images are discussed in detail during this podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome back. We are the Cold Case Crew and we are a group of friends who has gotten together to take a look at some of the oldest cold cases around to give new life and perhaps a new hope of resolution to a decades old story that's long since been silenced. My name is Whitney. It's Ashley. And I'm Beth. We would like to take a moment to say a very special thank you to our patrons over on our Patreon. Thank you for your continued support. Shout out to Sue DeValdez. If you are interested in supporting our channel, head on over to Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash cold case crew. You can receive a shout out, a thank you note, and customized stickers at the $3 level, as well as episodic updates for any episode on our main channel. At the $5 level, you also get access to our bonus content blind reaction episodes, which go up bi-weekly. And at the $10 level, you get all that plus your choice of a CCC shirt or tank. Thank you again to all our patrons for your support. Today, we will be bringing you another episode from the heart of our state's capital city, Charleston, West Virginia, the 1990 murder of 34-year-old Lynn Priestley. This will be the second episode in our Crimes of Our Capital City series. Now, I would like to point out that this is an active investigation as of 2021, and therefore more up-to-date input from law enforcement is sadly minuscule. However, with that being said, be sure to follow along with the news because the case is currently being worked and could have updates in the near future. In fact, recently, law enforcement have described the Priestley case as a jigsaw puzzle with only one or two missing pieces left to fall into place. There is a decent amount of information to present and certainly many, many questions to be raised with regards to Lynn's demise, and we will do our best to cover it all. So with that being said, ladies, are you ready to dive in? Let's do it. Let's go. Lynn Parker Priestley was born June 24th, 1955 to Charles Alva and Blanche Marie Priestley. She had one older sister, Letty Ann, with whom she was close. Born and raised in Charleston, Lynn attended and graduated from Charleston High School, where she wrote for the school newspaper, The Bookstrap. Friends remember Lynn for her sense of humor, her wit, and her fun-loving demeanor. Though she was notably an attractive girl, Lynn didn't take herself too seriously. She had recently changed jobs and was currently working for the Charleston Urban Renewal Authority. Blanche Priestley, Lynn's mother, remembers that Lynn had no fear. She would often worry about her daughter being out on the town and walking alone at night. But Lynn was from Charleston. She had spent her entire life there and never worried about such things as they were familiar landmarks and her paths that she had taken often. Lynn was five feet, four inches tall with shoulder length blonde hair. She was a pretty girl and was known to have had a lot of boyfriends. Friends have recalled that girls were often jealous of Lynn for this reason. Our series of unfortunate events all started on Friday, March 16, 1990. St. Patrick's Day weekend was just kicking off and 34-year-old Lynn Priestley had gotten off work from her job at the Charleston Urban Renewal Authority, where she worked as the assistant director. According to friends, Lynn was known for her wicked sense of humor, fun-loving nature, and flirty demeanor. At this juncture in time, Lynn had been seeing a married man named Thomas White for the past three months. To Lynn's credit, she had believed White to have been more of an arm piece than a serious boyfriend and was only seeing him casually. Lynn met up with friends and White at Bennigan's, which was located below Macy's at the Charleston Town Center, which is the name of the mall for all you non-locals. Here, the group had dinner and drinks. 
This particular night, Lynn was adorned in a pair of light blue Jordache jeans with a zipper at the ankle and white lace hearts on the pockets, a light blue Jordache jean jacket, and white tennis shoes. Her purse was a brown over-the-shoulder satchel. After finishing up at Bennigan's, her friends headed off to a popular bar, Spanky's, which was located on Kanawha Boulevard, to continue their evening. Lynn agreed to meet up with them around midnight and went with White to another establishment in the town center mall, the Tidewater Bar and Grill. I love the Tidewater. It was estimated to have been around 11 p.m. when the pair arrived at Tidewater. They entered the bar, lounge, where Lynn had been visiting with a group of friends. Lynn had previously been employed at Tidewater between 1985 and 1988 and still had many friends that worked in the establishment. According to witness reports, the couple was arguing rather loudly, though it's not known what the argument was about per se. At one point, White left the restaurant for around 15 minutes before he returned. When he did at last, he said that he had gotten lost when he was out. They reportedly stayed at the establishment for around another 15 minutes or so before making their departure. Though Lynn and White departed the restaurant, her car keys were reportedly left on the bar where she had been sitting. The exact time of the pair's departure is inconsistent with various reports. Several note the pair left around 1130. Others state they left as late as 1230. That's kind of crazy. I mean, that's an hour's difference. So I tend to think that they left around midnight, like split the difference. Just Well, and she was supposed to meet her friends at midnight, right? Yeah, she was supposed to meet her friends at midnight or around midnight. Yeah. White was not interested in joining Lynn at Spanky's Bar, according to his witness statement. He caught a taxi home from Tidewater around 11.15 p.m., leaving Lynn at the Court Street entrance to the town center mall to walk the estimated six blocks to Spanky's Bar. There are several discrepancies in his statement, however, the first being that Lynn and White were witnessed arguing by two separate people in the downtown vicinity. The second, his timeline of events... If the pair arrived at Tidewater at 11, had a fight where White left for up to 15 minutes, then stayed for 15 more minutes after his return, that still puts him leaving at 11.30, minimum, not including any conversations that occurred before the argument or potentially after. It would be more likely that the pair left Tidewater around 12 a.m., shortly before midnight. This would later line up with a sequence of events to come described by witnesses. Okay, so when he went outside, he was probably calling someone maybe to check in or... Like his wife? Yes. Sketchy. A security guard named Denzel Shamblin had reportedly been taking out the trash around 1230 a.m. He claimed to have overheard a verbal altercation between a man and a woman in the judicial annex parking lot. The woman reportedly screamed out before taking off in a run heading east on Coyer Street. He was unable to identify Lynn and White conclusively, however, because his glasses had been broken and he was unable to see clearly who were the parties involved in the altercation. It's so weird that his glasses were conveniently broken. Yeah, like why were his glasses, how did his glasses get broken? And how are you a security guard if you have broken glasses? Well, I mean, you have to be able to see, right? Yeah, would think... The second report was given by a bailiff named Mike Stiltner, who had stopped the couple outside the judicial building downtown shortly after. According to his statement, he encountered the pair, who had been arguing around 12.30 a.m., and held White back to answer some questions. 
This would have given Lynn ample time to potentially get away from White as she continued en route eastbound down Courier Street, presumably to Spanky's. The bailiff did identify the pair as Lynn Priestley and Thomas White, but has not commented publicly regarding the encounter. Lynn never made it to Spanky's in the early morning hours of March 17, 1990. The encounter with the bailiff was the last public record of Lynn Priestley alive. The next morning around 10 a.m., Thomas White contacted Blanche Priestley at her home asking if she had any correspondence with Lynn. She had not, in fact. Throughout the day, Blanche attempted multiple times to contact her daughter, but there was nothing to be heard from Lynn. This was out of character for her daughter, whom would often call her mother every day just to talk. Blanche knew something was wrong. That gut-sinking, panic-inducing mother intuition that something is not right was setting off alarms in Blanche's head. Around 5 p.m., Blanche Priestley called the Charleston Police Department to report her daughter missing. However, nothing would be done for the next 48 hours of Lynn's disappearance, as they were, you guessed it, under the assumption that Lynn had just ran off. Seeing as she was an adult, at 34 years old, and of her own free will, police believe this to be the most likely explanation. That same day, Saturday, March 17, 1990, Thomas White showed up at Tidewater Grill around 6 p.m. asking around to see if anyone had seen or heard from Lynn since the previous evening. They had not, but White did learn one very important detail. Lynn's car keys had been left at the bar. The staff did hand the keys over to White at this time. We also learn on this day that Lynn's vehicle was still located at the municipal parking lot where she left it the previous night. Likewise, Lynn's apartment bore no indication that she or anyone had entered since the previous day. No signs of foul play were indicated in either Lynn's vehicle or apartment. So the question remains, what had happened to Lynn Parker Priestley? I think it's crazy that she's missing and he has her keys. So apparently she didn't make it back to her car or her apartment because she didn't have keys, but still. And he's calling her parents and asking, hey, have you heard from Lynn? And he's going up to the restaurant. Hey, have you heard from Lynn? I mean, either he's really, really concerned about her or... He's trying to see if anybody's... He's trying to follow up on what happened the night before. And And I'm also curious if police ever obtained phone records to see if Thomas had called her multiple times. Of course, there would be no cell phones. It would be... Landlines. Landlines. So, that's the problem. Yep. She just ran off. That's what they always say. That's what they always say. No word of Lynn's whereabouts would be heard until five days after her disappearance on Wednesday, March 21st, 1990. Ironically, this was the same day that a search was set to be conducted of the Kanoa River and its banks. The efforts would be called off, however, after the following report came in. A fisherman was approaching the banks of the Kanoa River between Shillian and Chesapeake, West Virginia, 10 miles outside of Charleston, when he stumbled upon the naked body of a Caucasian woman that had been apparently dumped face down 10 feet from the river's edge. The fisherman initially thought Lynn's body to be a discarded mannequin. However, upon closer examination, the reality was far more sinister. Fisherman traveled to the Chesapeake City Hall to make the report of his grisly discovery. Why did he go to the Chesapeake City Hall? I guess it was the closest location. I'm not really sure. Well, that's true, yeah. And of course, there wasn't a cell phone, so he couldn't like just call somebody. Austin Wilson and Ed Leonard were among the first responders to the crime scene, followed closely by representatives from the Charleston and Marmette Police Departments. 
From the crime scene, authorities were able to obtain a set of shoe prints, presumably left from Lynn's assailant, from which a plaster mold was created and sent off for further analysis. They were also able to ascertain that Lynn's body had been discarded from the top of the embankment and rolled down the hill until it reached its final resting place, about 10 feet from the water's edge. It's important to note that the body never entered the water, but rather had simply been discarded near the water. There was no sign of Lynn's clothing or belongings found at the crime scene, and these items still have not been located to this day in 2022. Police immediately began to regard the case as a homicide and worked the investigation as such. Well, nothing. Mm-mm. Again. Nope. That's just, wonder where her clothes are. Right. I just wonder Burned. Like, where are they? Burned. I bet they're burned. They're with those white boots. Despite having generated a positive identity of the body, Lynn's name was originally withheld from the public to give time for authorities to contact the family. An autopsy was performed by Irvin Sofer, which revealed the following cause of death. Manual strangulation performed by human hand and not of ligature. Lynn's underwear was also noted to have been found crumbled up and stuffed inside her mouth. There were no marks on the body that would indicate physical violence. A rape kit was known to have been performed on the body. However, the results have never been revealed to the public. Coincidentally, law enforcement have likewise never commented on whether or not sexual assault had occurred, claiming the information too sensitive. It was estimated that Lynn's body had been discarded at the location of its discovery approximately four to five days prior, shortly after her last sighting. She was also said to have died not long before her disposal. I think that it's pretty clear that some sort of sexual something happened because why would they perform a rape kit? Well, there had to be like, you know, maybe she had bruising or there was something going on that... And they say that it's too sensitive. That means that there was something that went on, maybe some sort of mutilation of sorts that they just don't want out there. Maybe she was raped with something. Oh, God. I didn't think about that. Besides a human. Yeah, I got you. I got you. Yeah. Dear Lord. God. That's too sensitive. Immediately following the discovery of the body, Lieutenant Jack Bishop with the Charleston PD put out a press release pleading with the public to come forward with any information regarding Lynn's whereabouts that evening. A special 1-800 hotline was set up with 24-hour surveillance in order to intercept any and all calls that may come in. Callers were informed that their identities could remain anonymous. It is said that an excess of 30 calls came in with the first 24 hours of the line gone live and all leads were followed up on in a timely manner. One caller in particular who remained anonymous was especially helpful. Though because they remained anonymous, the authorities were unable to contact them in order to follow up on the information further. Charleston PD had around 13 officers, nearly the entire department, working the priestly murder around the clock. Though despite the promising beginnings of the investigation, the case would ultimately go cold. You know, that's a lot of... um, Manpower? Well, that's a lot of calls to come in that quickly. 24 hours? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that really is a lot of calls. So, I mean, I'm just wondering, like... How many people saw her in downtown Charleston? <laughs> it was St. Patrick's Day weekend. There was something going on at the the state basketball champions. Does that sound right? Going yeah. on at the convention yeah, center? The, the state tournament was going on at the, the Civic Center. Which is right there. Yeah, right there. So there... And let me tell you something. You know, during the state tournaments, it's packed right downtown in Charleston. And 1230 is late, but it's not... The last game, I don't think, starts till like 830 or 9 or something like that. So... 
I feel like there would still be an ample amount of people downtown. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I feel like there'd be a lot of people there. I think somebody saw something. Oh, well, sure. the one they said that that one was like helpful. The one they but, didn't leave they, their names, but, so they right, were not able so. to question them any further. And they never, from right. what I understand, they never reached back out. Like no. they're just like, here's some information, and I'm staying out of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's why we have like Crime Stoppers and all these things where people can get in touch and they don't have to get involved. So yeah, they can remain anonymous. Yes. Lynn Parker Priestley was laid to rest on Saturday, March 24th, 1990, with services at the Village Chapel Presbyterian Church in Charleston. The same day, her remains were interred at the Woodmere Memorial Park in Huntington. Her parents sadly passed away in 2005 and 2006, respectively, without ever knowing what happened to their beloved daughter. Though no members of her immediate family remain alive, Lynn's friends hold steadfast to the hope of resolution and have not given up that their friend may one day have justice she so rightly deserves. Yeah, she does. There are several things that point Thomas White out as the most likely suspect in the murder of Lynn Priestley. Now, don't get me wrong, we're not accusing anyone of murder here, but merely pointing out the facts of the case that lead us to this assumption. The first and perhaps most obvious reason being that the couple was notably arguing on the evening of the murder. White was also the last person reportedly seen with Priestley shortly before her demise. From her friends, we were able to discover that Lynn was in the process of calling it off with White, a move that White, who had been getting increasingly clingy with Priestley, was not in support of. Friends remember Lynn saying as recently as two days prior to her murder, I'm going to break up with him next week. I just got to kick him to the curb. He's getting possessive and clingy. I know what I want and he is not it. Thomas White was, at the time, a married man, which is another reason why Lynn was in the process of calling it off with him. I think she had recently found out that he was married, and she was like, yeah, no. Wow. I think it's sad, though, that, like, he lived in Charleston, and he's going out with her publicly all over the place, and... And his wife's just at home, like... Maybe with kids or something, you know? I mean... A fact that I also feel is important to point out is that death by manual strangulation is a very personal crime. Strangulation is the number one sign of domestic abuse. It's intense, impulsive, a loss of consciousness can occur within 10 seconds, and death within only 5 minutes. Strangulation is the ultimate form of power and control. Recent studies have showed that the most frequent motives for homicidal strangulation result from rape, sexual jealousy, and personal rivalry. It's about dominance and degradation of the victim. I found this particularly interesting, especially when correlating it to the way Lynn's friends have described the murder. It was brutal, savage, sadistic killing. It was. It was very, was very, yes. very sadistic. With all that being said, it has been said that Charleston police have reason to believe that White is not involved as well. The information has never been made public, and though it is not believed that White has been completely exonerated in the eyes of the law, despite being the obvious suspect, there has never been enough to tie him to the crime nevertheless. There are several questions that I feel should be raised. Though before I begin, I do want to state that it was confirmed that this next person was never a person of interest in the case. Firstly, I find it odd that the glasses of the security guard were broken. How did this occur? Perhaps through an altercation with a young woman who rebuked your advances? Also, how convenient that he was unable to 
to confidently identify Priestley as the woman seen in the parking lot that night. I want to state again that this is not an accusation of guilt, simply one person asking the questions that seemed obvious to me. I mean, it does make sense. Yeah. Just like you said, a security guard can't be a security guard with broken glasses. It's weird, right? It's very weird. And he's the one that says he saw them fighting or whatever, so... I know. It's like, what? He probably just got hit in the face and his glasses just broke. It was stated that women were also jealous of Lynn. Could Lynn's murder have been a hired hit enacted by a jealous wife of the married man she was currently seeing? Could the man have placed the hit spurred on by collapsing marriage in the belief that his girlfriend was getting ready to end it with him, leaving him with nothing? Yes. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. 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 That never like went through my head, honestly, but that is true, you know? Which leads us to the last in a series of evidentiary questions. Was DNA found beneath her fingernails? Despite no signs of a physical altercation on her body, it would be of my belief that when someone began to strangle her, she would fight back or raise her hands to the face or body of her assailant in an attempt to get them off. I will note that during the research for this case, another podcast made claims that authorities were able to extract DNA from under the fingernails, but that they were unable to link the DNA to a killer. However, I have been unable to substantiate this claim from another credible source and have not seen it mentioned elsewhere. A rape kit was noted to have been done on the body. This would indicate to me that there had been some form of sexual assault on the body. Despite the law's tight-lipped approach to that information, it is believed that her clothes had been removed due to evidence that could have been on them from the attack. Was the cab company that gave White a ride home that evening able to confirm his ride? Did they acquire logs from the trip? All of these questions and more haunt me with regards to this case. I'm going to go ahead and open this up for commentary, the part of the podcast where we volley around ideas, discuss theories, and elaborate on questions that have been raised. Ladies, who wants to begin? Well, I think that she probably was raped. I mean, her panties were off, shoved in her mouth. Yeah. Like, why else would you do that? Well, apparently she was screaming. And they had to quiet her down just in case. So, I'm curious if maybe they started to strangle her. She, You can lose consciousness within 10 seconds. Didn't that what that said? And then he maybe like carried her around like, oh, my girlfriend's drunk. Got to get her home. Gets her in a car. She wakes up. He's shoving her panties in her mouth to quiet her. And, and then, then tosses her over. Yeah. And then tosses her over the bank. Yep. I feel like that's so heartless. I don't feel like... I feel like it might have been done by someone that she wasn't seeing. I don't know. Strangulation's very personal. It's one of those crimes that happens impulsively. Yeah. That's kind of like, you know, when somebody is stabbed and stabbed and stabbed and stabbed and stabbed. Like, you know, that person had to have so much hate for that person to keep. It's kind of the same. I think it's the same thing as strangulation. It's like they just lose control. Yeah, I seem to think it's the boyfriend, but for whatever reason, they have not been able to tie it to him. So they must have something that points a finger in another direction. Right, because they would be able to get his DNA. Yeah, you would think very easily. I just think his behavior is kind of odd and his statements don't make sense. He is the only person besides maybe the wife that I feel like would have a motive unless maybe like she does work downtown. So maybe she knows the security guard or knew people. I know her mom, it said her mom used to work in the mayor's office for years. So 
She's familiar with a bunch of people that work downtown. Yeah, she was a pretty girl. Who knows? Maybe somebody had, like, asked her out and she turned him down and... Ran into him later. Yeah. You know, people do crazy things when they're drinking and under the influence of alcohol or drugs or whatever. These days, we hear about so many people that have all these mental and emotional problems, but I don't think that was very aware back then. People had them, but you didn't talk about it on the news or anything. And it wasn't diagnosed. Right. Yeah, that's also very true. Yeah. It's sad, though. Both of her parents died. Her sister died. So none of her immediate family is alive. It's like she's got two of her best friends that are still kind of out there pushing for justice. But Well, I'm really glad that she has those two best friends that are pushing. And I mean, she's lucky to have that because, you know, you never know. I mean, I would hope if something happened to me, you guys would keep pushing and pushing. We would. We would look. Thank you. We would push. We would do our research and dig and... You'd be on the cold case crew. Well, we know that you would get that under your fingernails. So we'd be oh, like, yeah. get under the fingernails. Oh, I'd be pulling hair and biting and fingernails and everything. Yeah. We'd be like, she's got that evidence on her. Just get it up. Yep. Yeah. It has been 32 years since the murder of Lynn Priestley and her case is still cold. As was previously stated in the beginning of the episode, this is an open investigation. If you or anyone you know has any information regarding the senseless slaying of Lynn Priestley, we encourage you to call the Charleston Police Department at 304-348-6460. You can also leave a tip online at www.charlestonpolice.org. You do not have to give your name and you are able to remain anonymous. We are a very interactive group. Check out our blog that has been posted on our website, www.coldcasecrewwv.com. Here, we share newspaper clippings, images of the area pertaining to the case, and so much more. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Cold Case Crew. Join us next time for the final installment in our Capital City series, the 1982 murder of banking executive Leroy Gorman. Do you have a case that you would like for us to cover on our podcast? Send us an email at coldcasecrew00 at gmail.com and let us know who you would like to hear about next. What's your theory?